Hey, this is Gabriel from the Acton Institute. It's Monday, and that means another episode of Acton Unwind on the Acton Line podcast feed. Starting next week, we will officially move Acton Unwind exclusively to its own channel. If you're enjoying these episodes and want to hear more of Eric, Sam, and the other Acton scholars, be sure to subscribe using the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy Acton Unwind. Hello, my name is Sam Gregg. I'm the Director of Research at the Acton Institute, and I'm here today as the host, filling in for my colleague Eric Cohen, who's the Director of Communications for Acton, for Acton Unwind, Acton's new weekly podcast in which we look at current topical issues, but also take a wider view of some of the things that interest the Acton Institute and its audiences. Joining me today in the Acton studio is uh, Michael Matheson-Miller, Senior Research Fellow at the Acton Institute, well known for uh, many writings as well as some great documentaries that have been produced over the years, such as Poverty Cure, such as Poverty Inc., etc. Uh, I'm also joined here today by Acton's librarian and research associate, Dan Huger, who always has lots of unexpected and interesting things to say about the most unlikely of topics. So welcome, gentlemen. So today I thought I'd begin our discussion, some reflections, with the topic that's on everyone's mind, which of course is the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan. Uh, As we get closer and closer to the 9-11 anniversary, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, it's uh, almost uh, providential that these two events are happening so close to each other. So we saw last week the tragic death of 13 uh, American military personnel who were involved in the evacuation from Afghanistan, which, as we know, is due to finish, uh, courtesy of the Taliban, on August the 31st, which is tomorrow. So I'd like to start with you first, Dan. Uh, give me some impressions of what the symbolism of this means, the, the moving, the leaving of Afghanistan, coming so close to the 20th anniversary of the event that in many Americans' minds marked the beginning of the war, what we used to call the war on terror. This weekend I was thinking over this and some of these tragic parallels is there were a number of, uh, of servicemen and women who, who died in that suicide bomb attack on the airport who were in their 20s. Uh, there, was, there was at least one young man that I read about who was 20 years old, which means that he was born eight months before the September 11th attack. And this is something, September 11th is my birthday. It was my senior year of high school. Um, and uh, I was reflecting on this because uh, with a friend of mine, you know, we'd both received calls from military recruiters sometimes around the time. And I said, you know, if we had taken a different path in life, we might have spent the last 20 years there um, in various capacities. So it's a staggering amount of time and it's a staggering lack of progress. We now have sort of bookended what began with a tragic terrorist attack on American soil that claimed American lives. And we've, we've, we've bookended that now with um, another tragic terrorist attack claiming American lives. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's disconcerting. And it feels like from all we know about how the war has been managed from its inception. The last, the last time I was at Acton Unwind, I referred to the Afghan papers. And we have a sort of history of documented mismanagement and corruption in both the Afghan government and in the United States military's administration of these things. And it seems like there was a very serious purpose here, but there was not a serious attempt to turn that purpose into meaningful change for the people of Afghanistan and, and for the, and for the world at large. So it's, it's been, it's been a somber concurrence for me. So Michael Matheson Miller, let's talk about this whole Afghanistan situation, but particularly as it relates to uh, 
how Americans think about politics, how Americans think about the world, and if you like uh, what some people have described as the, the clash, the very evident clash now between what you might say, uh, the way that American political discourse is configured and the way it operates compared to, you know, very harsh, brutal realities that we see exhibited in the face of, well, in the, in the case, for example, of Afghanistan, in the reality of what the Taliban are actually like and some of the deeper cultural and religious currents that drive some of these movements, drive some of these struggles, which I've often thought Americans sometimes, we have a lot of difficulty facing up to the reality of what these things actually look like. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks, Dan. I mean, these are very complex things. And as we watch, oh, oh, watch it what happening, you know, there's so much information that we don't we don't have. So it's always, you know, I think with um, a certain type of hopefully humility uh, that we comment on on very complex things. But I mean, a couple of things that stand out. Um, it, you know, this this war with Af- Afghanistan. I'm talking to my children. I was explaining how the, the Soviets lost a war with Afghanistan, right? And how this is a, a, a uh, or in Afghanistan, and so this is not not a new thing. But I think and a the British of, remember yeah. oh, the yeah. British back in the eight, in the 19th century. So, so I think a couple of things, but the way, the way we left, I think affects a couple of things. Number one, it's, it's affects the idea of credo or, 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 um, credibility and belief in the United States. And so I've heard, you know, different people talking, um, about like military people saying, okay, of course we're going to stand and fight for the, the soldier, the Marine next to us. But the idea that we're going to still fight for America can trust in the United States, I think is a, is a real problem that may have longer social consequences than we realize. Um, and I think it even it relates to even say, thinking about like the American economy, this, can you trust the United States? So I think that's one big, big issue. I think another, um, <clears throat> Bill McGurn wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, that someone told me about that, that where he basically argues that, you know, President Biden wanted to give a nice 9-11 speech 20 years at the end of kind of the, the 20 years after we finished the war on terror, we were out of Afghanistan, et cetera. And um, when I, when I, but he didn't get that, of course, uh, because now we're, we're it may, the Afghanistan problem is right in front of us. And I think what struck me about that is just how the United States in our political um, and social discourse is so much about symbols. And everyone's kind of um, very eloquent, highly educated, speaking in symbols all the time. And, you know, everybody has to give a sign like, where are, you know, are you politically correct? Are you on the right side of things? Uh, so we even have like real confusion, I think, epistemically of like, how do we think about the, the how do we think about, say, COVID? We don't really know because we can't trust the, the, the leading medical journals because we know on areas of, say, for example, is a boy a girl, right? They're very unclear. But right, they're actually saying like no one is willing to say a boy is a boy, a girl is a girl. Everyone has to kind of speak in this symbolic manner. And then and I can develop this more, but I think I think you get the point that now we go and we deal with the reality of the Taliban. They don't care about our symbols. They don't care about our eloquent speeches. And so we're actually addressing a part of reality that we have to deal with. So that's the first, that's the second thing. It's just that I think our political discourse is so disconnected from reality and so focused on symbols. Um, and you think about, you know, how kind of everyone is posing uh, to have a, and put themselves in positioning to to have a certain credibility uh, that doesn't really work in in I think the real world with the Taliban. And then the third thing that struck me is just how do we how do and I don't this is something I've been thinking about. So I'd like to hear both both of you maybe critique it or or, or refine it. But I was talking to someone who's a, who's a, a chaplain in, in in the military, and he was explaining to me a lot of the soldiers. Um, go through this idea that they've just been doing evil and killing people to obtain some good for, you know, for America. And it struck me like, wait, that's a, that's a real problem because that's actually not what's happening. I mean, noble war is not evil, right? Unjust war is evil, but, but when you're in a war that's, that's just, or you're, you're, you're fighting bad guys, you, if you have the idea that you're doing an evil to obtain a good, that's going to, culturally really infect the way we see the world. And I think part of that goes to the idea that we've lost the sense of the idea of a good. That Now, that doesn't mean we can't be self-reflective. And the United States has its own serious moral problems. But, but in our 
war against the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban are evil. They abuse women and children. Uh, they're suicide bombers. Uh, they sell women into sex slavery. I mean, this, this, is, an, this is an evil group of, of, of regime. And so we're dealing with this, um, what Harvey Mansfield called excessive manliness, right? This thumos that's coming at us. And how do you deal with that? Well, we need, we need to respond with excessive manliness. We need to respond with strength and power. But if we've lost the idea that what we're doing is good, and noble, and this goes back to the credo, I think the social consequences of that are, are deeply problematic. So it seems to me, and I'm not a military expert, so I, I want to avoid any, anything like that. I just think socially that the loss of the idea of good, this highly focused on symbols separated from reality, and then the breakdown of trust in the way we left Afghanistan is going to have long-term political and social consequences for us. I'd like to pick up on that idea, Michael, that you're developing there of how particular, let's call them narratives, become orthodoxies, how they become the way, the accepted way, in fact, in some respects, the only acceptable way to talk about any given number of subjects. Uh, I remember back in uh, 2000, 2000, early 2001, George W. Bush saying that the United States should not be in the business of nation building. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Very quickly after the beginning of the Afghan war and then the United States goes into Iraq, suddenly nation building becomes the orthodoxy, the orthodoxy that to a certain extent was uh, prevalent on the right and the left and by, they often meant different things by that. But that became a type of orthodoxy what, that you weren't allowed to question. It was a type of grand symbol of the purpose of projecting American power abroad. So, Dan, let me turn to you. What do you think of the whole narrative of nation building, both as a sort of general concept, but also as something that America has tried to do now uh, over the past 20 years, and which all seems to have blown up in our, faith, in our faces pretty Dramatically Now, of course, you know, there have been in cases in the past where the United States has done this relatively successfully. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, post-war West Germany and post-war Japan. But generally speaking, it hasn't worked out so well. So t tell me, what are you thinking now about the way that this idea of nation building figures both as a way of how America approaches the rest of the world, but how so also America understands itself? Sam, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of sort of what nations are and how they begin. Um, nations have a history. Um, they draw on that history. They hopefully move forward in ways... Um, to make society both both more free and virtuous as they develop, but that's not something <clears throat> that's something that's the product of provenance. That's something that's the product of people in their everyday lives fulfilling their vocations and duties. Um, people exercising sort of prudential judgment in state and cultural institutions, and that's not something that an NGO can just plop down somewhere. It's not something that an academic can write up. Um, you know, we we we've had uh, you know there was a great sort of uh, project of of language building at one point with Esperanto. And the notion that, oh, we can just create this language mm -hmm. and right. this is going to have a streamlined grammar, rules, spelling. We'll design it so it's easier for people in a, coming from a wide variety of background languages to learn. And this, this does not become the universal language because this is not how language operates because language like nations are the product of culture. Um, we often talk about in act at, at the Acton Institute about how piety is no sub substitute for technique, that good intentions um, are not enough, that you also need those sound economics. But I feel like what the Afghanistan episode teaches us is the inverse, is that technique is no substitute for piety and that you have to have a conception of the good and that has to be shared with in partnership 
with um, the people whose nation you're trying to build up. And if that's not there, no amount of expertise or automatic weapons or well drilling can fill that gap. Yeah. That's really interesting, Dan. And I'd like to turn uh, to Michael now to ask a, a, a very similar question. Uh, Dan was just talking about how, you know, this this piety issue, if you don't have sort of strong beliefs, then no amount of technique, no amount of military prowess will necessarily compensate for that. We've seen quite a bit of comment over the past couple of weeks arising out of the Afghanistan situation, but I think also as a lot of other factors, suggesting that one of the reasons why the Taliban has proved victorious, you know, they've been willing to fight for 20 years against a technologically superior enemy, taken far more casualties than the United States and its allies in this particular war. But a lot of people have been saying that part of the problem that the United States and the West more generally had was it wasn't able to project a same type of commitment of belief that the Taliban and, for that matter, sort of broader terrorist groups are, are able to do. You know, obviously, in the case of many of these groups, these, these beliefs are evil, these beliefs are deeply destructive, but they are beliefs. So what, just in a general sense... Do you think that this question, this crisis of belief, has played some sort of role in the very uncertain way in which the United States <clears throat> is projecting itself on the world and the way that it deals with both its friends and its allies in the world? I think it's a, it's a very good question. I think two, two things. One, just first, let me say something about, um, which was related to belief that, that Dan said that I think is really important, is that you know, the piety and technique question. And I think that the other thing that's, that, that's really missed when we think about um, the Taliban, our relation with Taliban and the nation building is that, is this a whole idea of complexity, right? And it's something we talk about at the, at the Atkins Institute is embedded economics, right? That we're embodied persons and embedded persons. And so we're born into a family, into a language, into a culture. And so, for example, you know, we think about... Um, what, what happens when we start a business and have free exchange and all the little things that we talk about? Well, all those things, they don't just pop out of nowhere. They come out of rule of law, freedom of association, free exchange, a concept of justice, a concept of the good, a concept of, 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 of the goodness of being. I mean, these are very deep embedded ideas. And I think there's, you know, we won't get into all those details, but I think Dan makes a really important point that um, one of the problems we face uh, in the way we think about whether it's it's domestic policy or foreign policy or helping the poor is we're hyper kind of technocratic. We think we, we forgot we've, we've disembodied and disembedded ourselves. And so, um, but that just doesn't work in the, it doesn't work in the real world. It doesn't work in domestic policy. It doesn't work with poverty and it surely doesn't work in, in foreign policy and, and, and war. Now on the question of, um, uh, on the question of, of, this belief. I mean, I do think, I mean, this is a big civilizational question, but it seems to me increasingly that the West, uh, and this is not, this is nothing new. This has been happening for, I think, decades and maybe a century. The West, but especially in the last decades, we've lost a sense, again, of the good, a sense that we have something to offer. And I think it's really important that we're self-critical. I mean, obviously, you know, so I think in the United States, uh, look at look at some of the things that we do, say, in abortion or the way we, we've socially engineered people or with eugenics. I think we have some serious problems. But we also have, like, a vision of what a good life is. And, the, and I think Dan, Dan talks about, like, the, the importance of the family, importance of abilities of human beings to have freedom, to be able to build things and develop things. I think we've lost that deep sense of, of our idea of the good, idea of beliefs in the West. I think this goes back to this kind of the... I don't, I don't overly like to use the word elite, but I mean like the highly educated, very influential people have, have narratives of the West as somehow, you know, only destructive, only harmful. And as this spreads down uh, into normal thinking or also influ influences foreign policy, I, my, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know if the, how, how right this, I'd like to know what you think, but it seems to me that we don't have an idea of the good. We don't have an idea or a strong belief that the project that we're doing, that is the project of creating a free and virtuous society where families are able to flourish and live and why millions of people immigrate to the United States. 
we've lost the sense that that's somehow good. We're kind of ashamed of ourselves. And I think that um, that is playing out in the way we, we, that I think our enemies smell that they realize that. And um, I think it's playing out. I don't know. I don't know if I've answered your question. I don't know how eloquent that was, but what do you think? What do both of you think about that? Well, no, I think that's, I think you, you did answer the question and I think you're pointing to a real challenge in Western societies, which is if the West doesn't really know what it is, what it stands for. And, you know, being self-critical, I think that's extremely important. Any society, any culture needs to be self-critical so it doesn't fall into the trap of idolizing, making an idol out of itself. But I think it's true that 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 certainly, I, I think, really since the First World War, there has been this deep yep. sense of self-doubt that has permeated Western societies. And in the 1930s, Fascist regimes and communist regimes sense this. They could smell this sense of uncertainty, and that's very much in some respects where we are today. And, of course, the other thing we find is that there's a there's a considerable body of, uh, let's call it a quote-unquote elite opinion, for whom the nation is not so important. Nations are sort of avatars of the past, and they're really preaching a type of let's call it Kantian liberal internationalism. I mean, some people call it globalism. Some people call it liberal order. But I think it's it's almost like the vision of Davos man right. has, um, has become very dominant in many highly educated circles in Europe, in the United States. And it turns out that Davos man is really very effective when it comes to dealing with um, regimes or groups that are strongly motivated by, motivated by a very different vision of the world and have a very concrete understanding of what they want. It might be evil, it might be bad, it might be terrible, it might be self-destructive, but nonetheless, it's very clear and it's there. Yeah, can I, can I say me, one I thing mean, on both, that, Sam? Sure, go ahead. I think two, sure. two things that strike me is I think, you know, that, especially your last point, um, if, and I'll say this in very, very basic language, but if there's bad guys who want to kill us or there's a bully who wants to beat you up, um, you you can't just bring them to an international conference and have a conversation with them. That's not, that's not the language they speak. That's not the response they need. And so I think we need a sense of that there's, we have to stop them from doing bad things. That doesn't mean necessarily we have to build their nation, but we have to, we have to in a sense, do that. And we have a responsibility to not let a bully push you. And I think Davos Man, um, Davos Man is a kind of a quiet technical social engineer who behind the scenes will absolutely destroy people's life. But when there's something that comes straight in front of you, I think they're, they're weak to do that. And I think then one philosophical thing I would say that relates to this, it, you, you talked about the First World War and in the West. I mean, I think this goes deeply to something I talk about all the time, and I know you do too, Sam, which is a crisis of reason. We have lost the sense of reason in the West, and so we've reduced reason to this empirical, technical, technocratic element. So we really can't make strong, reasonable arguments of what's good, what's true, what's beautiful, what's what right, and what's wrong outside of the technical. And that works more or less in the West because we're living off cultural capital. But when we have to actually stand up for something and we're pushed— I, I think we, we've lost that idea of the good because we've lost the idea of reason. And we, we, can't, we don't have a narrative, as it were, uh, that, justifies, that justifies this project that, that the Western civilization anymore. We've, and I think that that's a, a philosophical weakness that sounds very kind of pedantic, but when it gets brought down to the ground, if you, don't, if you can't articulate why you stand for something, it's going to be really hard. And, and you're surrounded by incredible wealth and comfort. It's going to be really hard to make sacrifices for, for something that, that is very ephemeral and, and intangible. Well, I'm very glad you mentioned the subject of reason and the crisis of reason, Michael, because it's a wonderful segue to the next topic I'd like to raise with both of you. Uh, the both of you have talked about nation building in a way that reminded me of what uh, someone who the Acton Institute pays a lot of attention to in terms of economics, and that's F.A. Hayek. The way he talked about there was a he said there was a crisis of reason in the West, and he described it in many respects as sort of what he called the constructivist fallacy, the notion that uh, you can use reason to 
reorganize and redeploy resources, people, so that you can completely alter the structure, the, um, the, the way that resources are deployed, the very nature of different sectors of the economy through this application of what, what he called constructivist reason, which he saw as a sort of manifestation of something we also talk a lot about at Acton, which is this problem of scientism, which you mentioned, Michael, the sort of reduction of reason to the empirical and the fact that that doesn't, the empirical doesn't allow you to answer sort of ultimate questions. But I was thinking about this constructivism problem on the weekend because it was sparked by all things, reflection upon the fact that we have the Biden administration pushing through this very big infrastructure bill, infrastructure bill, uh, which proposes or purports to fill in many of the infrastructure gaps that the administration, but also quite a lot of people on both sides of politics, believe has been essentially lost sight of over the past 40 years. I've heard people talking about, well, the last time we had a serious infrastructure program was back in the 1950s when Eisenhower was president. We had these great highways that were built and this was very important. And we need something like that today so that we can fill in particular gaps. Now, of course, those of us who are free marketers have always acknowledged that there are certain things that government has to do. And no less than Adam Smith said, for example, that it generally falls to the state to take care of what you might call the public goods of his time. So things like roads, bridges, etc. Now, fast forward to today, and we see this very big effort being uh, pushed through Congress right now of infrastructure. And what struck me about it, I started to look at some of this, and it seems that our concept of infrastructure has radically expanded <laughs> beyond anything that someone like uh, an Adam Smith or a Hayek or any of these sort of free market types who would say, yes, government does have a role in this particular part of the economy, but it's again, it's a limited role and there's always risks associated with it. So, Dan, I'd like to turn to you first. Give me your thoughts on, first of all, anything you might have to say about this particular effort at infrastructure and maybe the way it relates to nation building, but also the general concept of infrastructure and how that plays out in the way that those who are free, those of us who are free marketers, but also how the Acton Institute thinks about the concrete role that government plays with regard to some of these, these very important things that do need to get done at some point. So the, <clears throat> there's an interesting juxtaposition um, in the legislation themselves, that what has come out of the Senate is much more of that Adam Smith style public goods, talking about roads, bridges, power grids, uh, water, waste, wastewater reconstruction. Um, and all of that, I think, you know, there, there can be a government role in that. But one of the striking things is reading about this when you, when you brought up the Eisenhower administration's uh, interstate highway initiative – is some of this funding is dedicated towards reintegrating neighborhoods that were broken apart by our last great infrastructure initiative. Right. I think Amity Schles talks about this in her uh, book on the Great Society, where she talks about how building these a lot of highways, creating all this infrastructure right. actually broke up and destroyed a lot of very delicate, so, let's call it social ecology, that functioned in, for example, many um, African-American communities that were doing fine until suddenly a big highway got shoved all the way through the community that they had built up from the bottom, so to speak, over a number of years. And then, by the way, they never put into, you know, projects, public housing. But go ahead, Dan. Right. And, and you can see this. You can see this. The city of Grand Rapids itself was transformed by this process. And, and, and this was a long process. This began in the Eisenhower administration. This did not finish until 1992. So this was a very far-sighted, very long-term project. Um, I am skeptical that um, 
the public officials we have today, um, the sort of problems that we've we've outlined in talking about Afghanistan with a lot of, and I'm not hesitant to use the word elites, <laughs> so I'll use it. But I think we're dealing, um, Martin Gurry wrote a very interesting piece about Afghanistan. And we had talked a lot about the culture of Afghanistan and a little bit about the culture here. But I think this comes to play in infrastructure, too. And Gurry writes in this piece, uh, we tend to forget that there was another culture at play. The norms that framed American society in 1945 have radically changed by 2002, the beginning of, of the war in Afghanistan. Twenty years later, it's as if we've evolved into a different species. Douglas MacArthur wielded more power than any divine emperor over post-war Japan. He became a literal dictator in the sense that he dictated that country's democratic constitution, a document that remains in force today. Secretary of State George C. Marshall's idea was unprecedented in history, that the conquering nation would, in essence, pay reparations to the vanquished. The global prosperity that ensued is, is we have that legacy still, that capital still, but He's asked, try to imagine our current political class displaying such confidence while deploying raw power and violating conventional wisdom in pursuit of geopolitical objectives. And I think the same thing sort of sentiment goes with infrastructure. And while all of these things, uh, many of these things, you know, for purposes of safety with roads and bridges, for purposes of future energy security with power grids, all of that is there. I'm not at all confident that particularly Washington, D.C. can manage this. Um, Even local infrastructure projects are plagued with cost overruns, Mm -hmm. are sort of interminable. So it'll be be interesting to see um, what even even that more limited uh, conception of infrastructure, how successfully that can be realized. Um, Now, there's a whole other question, and there's a whole other separate bill in the House, which has a larger conception of infrastructure, including, you know, a lot of things that are addressed to, you know, sort of the development of what, what some economists like to call human capital, I'm uncomfortable with that language because humans humans are not capital and the traditional economic categories are land, labor, and capital. And I think there's a very good reason for – there's a human element, of course, in a dignity in labor. I also think there's a human element in entrepreneurship, which many of the classical economists neglected right. um, as, as you know, people creatively serving a coordinating function in society. Um, and it seems, you know, this is this is we're talking about uh, universal pre-K, two free years of community college, paid family leave, a lot of climate legislation, you know, climate initiatives. Um, and the idea is is that if we just pour money, mediated of course through institutions that are often political constituencies, um, that all that that can transform people. That we can somehow, in the way we upgrade a factory, manage to upgrade America. Um, or upgrade human beings. Yeah. And this is right. something I'm extremely skeptical of. Well, Michael, let me turn to you because um, I won't ask you so much about the details of the, this particular infrastructure bill, but tell me what you think is the role of government vis-a-vis infrastructure today. I mean, as we've talked about how free marketers have always said that there is a role for government when it comes to these types of issues, but we're living in a very different world to the world that Adam Smith lived in in the 1770s, or for for that matter, as Dan pointed out, the world of the 1950s in which Eisenhower was present. It was the picket fence. You had uh, happy families. Everyone went to church, et cetera, et cetera. but we're living in a very different world now from that in 2021. So what are your thoughts about what's the proper role of government today vis-a-vis infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a, an important question. I mean, first of all, I mean, I do think, I know you're partially joking, but we have to make sure that I, others do. Obviously, the 1950s weren't perfect. <laughs> that's not what you're right. saying. I think, but what Dan's point was is that we did have a better concept of who we were as a good. And, and this idea that, in fact, as Dan pointed out, we're going uh, to win World War II, and then we're not going to punish 
but in fact rebuild these societies. I mean, there's something to be said for that. I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that there was a suicide bomber uh, who was killed with a weapon that it's a knife, like it cuts you up. So the fact is, why do they use this knife that, that goes in and blows up the su- or, or destroys the suicide bomber? Because they're trying to reduce collateral damage. I mean, this is something that we have to, that's part of our culture and part of our history. And I think, unfortunately, we've lost a sense of who we are, partially because we don't know where we came from. We haven't, we, we, we're in this kind of rejection of Western civilization as somehow oppressive. We've lost the fact that the reason we're even able to say that is because we live in Western civilization with ideas of justice and rule of law and private property and so forth. So, But I think on the question of infrastructure, I mean, two things stand out to me. Um, one is I, I agree with you and Dan. There's obviously a place for infrastructure, right? We And, and um, there's, there are public goods. There's a role for the government. I talked earlier about embedded economics. Um, you know, I often I ask this question thinking about poverty. Like, why do entrepreneurs emerge in, say, Boston or Silicon Valley and not in Lagos or, or, or say, Rio? Well, it's physical infrastructure. It's institutional infrastructure. It's an educational system. It's a strong tax base that creates – and where does that tax base come from? Well, that comes from a commercial society. And where do we have a commercial society? Well, it comes from um, constitutional government and rule of law and ideas of justice and on and on and on. And we're like embedded in this place where we take infrastructure for granted. So I think there's absolutely a place both for physical and institutional infrastructure. Um, the question is – and Dan kind of pointed to this – is do we have the competence today – in our, what I've taught, like our, you say narrative, which I think is probably better, but this highly symbolic narrative kind of posing world where we're unable to speak the truth about fundamental things. Um, do we have the ability and competence to decide, okay, this is what we really need to do to um, improve uh, the United States, improve people's uh, ways of living, or is it all going to be kind of a crony capitalist uh, collusion with bureaucrats uh, for, you know, pork. And I think, right. I, I mean, to be honest, I think this goes back to the credo question. Of that, that's not a new problem, by the no, way. No, it's an old the problem. The credism problem is, is an old problem. Oh, and, yeah, for and, sure. And uh, we, you know, people like Smith talked about this, um, plenty of 20th century free market economists and some, you know, not so much, not so free market right. economists used to talk about this as well. And Again, Amity Schles talks about in her books, The Great Society and um, The Forgotten Man. She talks right. about just how quickly human nature took over some of this stuff. But oh, this is the let me just choice. ask you this well, question, let me just, Can I say this quickly? Yeah. I think go that's ahead. Dan. Go ask me the question. But I think that's Dan's point about, in a sense, there's some, there's almost a lack of belief and credibility that that there's a vision for America and for this infrastructure bill. It's almost like all symbolic. And, and I that's why the question, I think Dan's question of competency. Let me just say one last thing, Sam, about the question of, of limits of, 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 of this, which is, right. you know, part of the limits are prudential and they depend on time. And I think this goes back to Dan's point. Can we trust the leaders to actually have any prudence to make good decisions? But then there's the real problem, which Dan already also began to articulate, which is the move from infrastructure to social engineering. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm 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 most worried about. Um, whether it's family or education or whatever it is, um, there's almost no confidence in the human person to be able to create value and 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 and, and, and uh, productivity and and prosperity in his own family and his own community. And so, if you think of infrastructure, it's supposed to be creating an infrastructure for human beings to build and flourish and create and develop. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to spend all this money on universal pre-K and, and free community college, much of which is, in fact, indoctrination to left-wing political ideas. Um, and, this, and of decreasing economic uh, value. Right, of well, course. And, and we, we know that some of those things don't <laughs> right. actually even create an economic value. And right. so I think of, I go back to thinking of Tocqueville's soft despotism. You know, I'm a Tocqueville guy. And we, taught, we tend to think of soft despotism as somehow like the state pushing down on you. But remember, part of soft despotism is there's all these rules and regulations, but there's also this enervation that goes on. He said, we'll be like sheep without a shepherd. We lose, we lose in a sense that, that, that spirit, that energetic spirit that's part of a democratic society where we're going to come here. This is why millions of immigrants came here with all this energy to build things. And we're kind of enervating the energy. We're taking it away 
and we're like sheep without a shepherd. And then that leads to more individualism, which leads to more centralization. So it seems to me part of my concern is that the goal of the infrastructure, not only is it excessive because we're not thinking about long-term uh, you know, the effects of all this debt, right? Because if we're in a, if we're in a Burkean social contract of the living, the dead, the, the dead, the living, and the yet to be born, it's like kind of, I'm sorry to go after baby boomer, but it's kind of like a baby boomer narcissism that we're just going to focus on right now without thinking about the future. And then the other part is this social engineering aspect, which enervates and, and in fact, disempowers families, disempowers neighbors, neighborhoods, and in fact, breaks apart that energetic spirit. Uh, and that really is self-serving. If you think about the regime wants to have centralization, so it promotes individualism. And that's, I think, also part of the infrastructure bill. I could be wrong on that, but that's my worry. Well, let's talk in the last uh, 15 minutes of this, uh, this podcast about a different form of infrastructure. Uh, we've talked about um, culture. We've talked about nations. We've talked about the 1950s. We've talked about uh, today the way the different forms of infrastructure are talked about. But there's also another form of infrastructure that the Acton Institute discusses a great deal. And that's the infrastructure that doesn't change, the infrastructure of what you might call human anthropology. Now, I was reminded of this recently when I did a review of a book by a, a, a scholar named Michael Ward, who's a professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University and also a fellow at Blackfriars Hall in Oxford. And the book is called After Humanity. And it's basically an analysis, a deep dive analysis into C.S. Lewis's great book, The Abolition of Man, which was highly influential in its time and remains highly influential today. Uh, and yet, it's a very, in some respects, very difficult book to read, unless you know a lot of things, unless you have some sense of what Lewis is invoking, some of the imagery, some of the ideas, some of the philosophers that he's invoking at different points. But I'd like to turn, first of all, to you, Dan, and I'd like to, I mean, I know you've read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, as is Michael, but Dan, I'd like you to give a sense of what you think are the most important points that Lewis's book brings to our discussions today when it comes to thinking about this deeper infrastructure of human order. I mean, this this was the first book I ever read that was uh, sort of explicitly, although in a roundabout way, that I think makes it accessible for, for people new to the natural law tradition to figure out what the natural law tradition is, to get some inkling of what natural law is. And it's put in very interesting ways. And I think it's, it's sort of crowning achievement is the first chapter talks about how we have lost um, sort of what comes after a living in a universe in which we think that, there, that, that, that there's meaning in reality behind things, that things have natures that persons have natures, that we have uh, both obligations to things in respect to their nature um, in our own. And one of the ways he talks about this is, this is a quote that I picked out, is he talks about how no justification of virtue will enable a man to be virtuous. Without the aid of trained, of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. So on the one hand, it defends this philosophical natural law tradition, but it's also sort of a call to action of, you know, how do we internalize this? How do we make this part of our lives, our daily moral compass? How do we let it shape us beyond just appreciating the arguments. And, and I think that's, that's, that's the most uh, sort of unique and compelling thing about the book. Michael, I know that you, you actually lectured at some point about C.S. Lewis and this book, The Abolition of Man. I, I think that's right. And you, I know you've mm -hmm. certainly written some things about it. What do you think 
remains the most important messages of that book today. I mean, Dan, I think, rightly points to the fact that for many people, it's really their first introduction to the idea that there is this thing called natural law, which at Acton we talk about all the time. I think it's been a particular gateway for a lot of evangelicals, for example, into the natural law tradition, because as we all know, natural law tends to be associated with uh, Roman Catholicism. You know, you often hear people say, well, it's just Catholics who take that sort of stuff seriously. But C.S. Lewis was not a Catholic. Mm-hmm. He was uh, someone who started off life as a sort of a nominal Christian, lost his faith, then returned to theism, and then became an Anglican in the uh, early 1930s. But what do you think, given all that history, given all that background, and given all the time that's gone between when that book was first published and today, what do you think are the most perennial messages of that book for a generation of Americans and others around the world, not just in the West, but other countries, who are saying, you know, there's got to be more to to, to life, there's got to be more truth than the idea that everything is relative. Right. Well, yeah, thanks. I, I love this book. I think it's one of the f- most important books of the 20th century. And I, I thought about it a lot. I've actually taught it um, a number of times. I, I think I told you a student used to tease me. Have you ever given a talk a lecture where you don't mention C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man? Like, I, hope, <laughs> I hope not. I think it's important for lots of reasons. I think uh, Dan hit on, on one of them, which I'll go back to. But I think so in the beginning, he, he makes this point. I think that's very related to the way we're thinking about today. How do we, how do we understand ourselves in a very complex world? And in the beginning, he's talking about education and that education tricks us into relativism. And it's very subtle, right? And so if you, it's actually interesting because if you look at critical thinking books today, like teaching like fifth graders, sixth graders doing critical thinking, the exact error that Lewis ha- points out is in those books. Even homeschool books have it, right? And so it'll ask you questions like, okay, what is, is this a fact or an opinion? Uh, so they'll say like, you know, Bach was born on this date in you know, this town. Bach wrote beautiful music, right? Um, George Washington was the first president of the United States. George Washington was a good president, right? Um, the example I always give is, you know, disco was popular in the, in the 1970s. Bell bottoms are cool, <laughs> right? And, of course, each of those becomes fact, opinion, fact, opinion, fact, opinion. Right. And then when I teach this, I'll say, okay, murder is bad. And there's a pause, like, wait. Murder is bad. Wait, what am I supposed to say? Based on what I've just been taught, murder is bad. It's just an opinion. So it, it gets people right into relativism, and it, it's a, it, f- f- it fosters an empiricist rationality, right? Just like with fifth and sixth graders, okay? But – but, um, and so that's the, that's the, the first thing. Uh, but it also kind of – it kind of – it lulls you into these – into this position, right? Um, so that's, that's one. And then related to that, it um, – it also there's a, it, at the end of that at the end of that chapter he's talking about we've created men without chests so we have this he said it's not, we are men without chests he said not because our intellects are big it's because our chests have atrophied we're so we're so weak in that in that what that heart and so he says we laugh at honor and we're shocked to find traitors in our midst we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful he said so we've removed the patrimony from uh, from the child right away with a so-called critical thinking exercise, okay? It also makes a huge error between what's a fact and what's an opinion, right? An opinion is justified belief. And a fact is a, prop, is a true proposition about a state of affairs that obtains, right? So what's the opposite of a fact? A false proposition. And is an opinion good or bad? It depends on how it correlates to the, to, to the fact. The truth of the matter. Right, the truth of the matter, right? And so, so the thing is, people are confused about what a fact is, what an opinion is. I, I say this, it takes this beautiful, sublime experience of a, each unique un- individual person, like Dan, Sam, me, whoever. We come to, say, a piece of music or a landscape like a waterfall with our hopes, our dreams, our experiences, our fears, our education, and we each see something different. And instead of being able to say, oh, Dan saw this and I can, my soul can expand and learn from Dan. Instead of that, what do I get? Like, well, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Everybody's got their own opinion. I mean, it's absolutely boring. So it really dehumanizes people, right? And I think that Lewis is saying, revitalizing us. Look, let's better that Dan and I have a fundamental disagreement about whether the waterfall is sublime or pretty. 
and one of us be wrong and our souls be expanded than to just say, well, you know, I mean, everybody feels different things. I mean, it's just so boring. And I don't think human, I think young, young people want their feelings to matter. And Lewis, in a sense, makes them matter. Um, the second thing that's super important is related to this idea of the conditioner. I think it's so relevant to today. Um, we live in a hyper-technocratic world whether it's big tech that's conditioning us with all their behavior modification. Um, you'll notice you mentioned scientism, Sam. Lewis is a great critic of scientism, not just yes. in the abolition of man, but in other places. It's just fantastic. And he really overlaps with Joseph Ratzinger in so many areas. Um, and Ratzinger actually quotes him at times. But this idea of the conditioner who steps outside of humanity, right? So there's a very famous uh, biologist named E.O. Wilson. And Wilson says something to the effect of... Um, you know, morality is just something that's fobbed off on us from our evolutionary. It's an illusion fobbed off on us from our evolutionary, you know, development. And so the question is, really, like, how did you possibly see that? If it's an illusion fobbed off on us, how are you the one person that got out of humanity to be able to see that? And now you, the wise one, are able to condition us? And that's what Lewis points out. That's why Lewis says, I'm a Democrat, not because I, because I, I it's kind of like a, the famous Buckley line, you know, I'd rather have 400 oh, people yes. in the first 400 people in the Boston uh, uh, telephone book, book right, than, than Harvard, because these, this elitist conditioner who thinks they're outside of humanity, I think that's really important. And then the third thing for Lewis goes back to, Sam, to, to Dan's point uh, when he talks about the head rules the belly through the chest. Right. And the example I always give is this, um, and I've done this at Acton, you know, uh, we sometimes like if you imagine like our intellects, like a little tiny professor with a bow tie and our belly is this massive gorilla that wants stuff. Right. And so our belly's like, I want it, you know, and our little tiny intellect professor's like, uh, pardon me, the catechism says you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> right. And the gorilla is like, I don't care. I want it. But what stops that? Well, what stopped that's the chest. The chest is, I mean, this is out of Plato. I mean, this is very much of the tradition, but the chest is that desire for the good, the true, the beautiful the, that's been shaped and developed and hasn't been minimized by this bad educational system that can say, I may have the immediate desire for comfort and pleasure. I know it's wrong, but the knowledge of wrong is not going to allow me to do what's good and what's right. And that's what the chest is for. And that's part of how we need to be educated. And I would say, if you look at the United States today, um, we are all, we all are, have, have oversized intellects filled with narratives and symbols. And we've lost the chest. We've lost the fullness of what it means to be a human being. We've been robbed of our patrimony. And so I think Lewis is absolutely relevant today in just so many ways. And I'm sorry I went on so long, but that's no, that's best, fine. Actually, it leads me to my leads me to the question that I'd like you both to address um, in you know say two minutes each. But it's a question which I think is very relevant for the mission and outlook of the Acton Institute. And the question for both of you is this: What is C.S. Lewis's relevance for free societies? You mentioned Michael that he's essentially a Democrat. He's very suspicious of. Uh, what one might be called a corrupted intellectual class. And the solution to that is a sort of a type of democracy, right? So, right as opposed what, to what, tenoc technocracy, right? Right, right. Not, not right. like a Democratic Party member. Right, right. No, no, of course, that's not what I mean. So what, so what do you both think, in, in two minutes each, is Lewis's most important significance for the free society today? You yeah. go first, Dan. Yeah. So Lord Acton has, has a great line where he talks about his vision for <clears throat> a society beyond the state and individual souls above it. Um, this is an, a, a letter that I like to quote a lot. And I think that is what Lewis helps us see, is that at the center of all of these questions is you need a moral person who not only knows the natural, you know, a person who's a moral agent, not necessarily a moral yes. or immoral person, but it begins with a person who's a moral agent who is informed by the natural law, habituates themselves in virtue, and that's when they can act freely because otherwise you are inevitably captured and you're captured by social planners, or you're captured by your own desires, or you're captured by the ideological 
uh, constructs of your own mind. And that, that's, that's the basis. That is the basis of how you have a society. And then from that society is where, you know, a state earns its legitimacy, respecting both the individual consciences of, of people and respecting the boundary, its own boundaries and the other institutions that fill uh, a necessary role in all of social life. Thanks, Dan. Michael, what do you think? I mean, he clearly, Lewis's ideas clearly have very direct implications for politics. So where do you think his, his ideas are especially important for those of us who are concerned about not just building, but I think at this point, preserving a free society in the conditions of today? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Dan did a, a very good job at, at, at first articulating this, this element of, you know, Lewis is very, very careful. I mean, very, he says, you know, that all life, all politics, and I would add all economics, is really to serve the dignity of the human person who's called to flourish and not just as a radical individual, but an embodied embedded person. And I think Lewis is, 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 I think Dan makes another very important point. I want to reiterate is Lewis's attachment to not just the natural law tradition, but really the whole patrimony of thinking about, about goodness and courage and et cetera is disconnects you from the immediate of the age and helps you resist propaganda because, because you're, you're, uh, you're again. You're part. You're part of something broader than than the immediate uh, of the age. But I, I think you know he he also he also has a couple of things that are are important for the free society. That a person is, and this goes again to Dan's point. But a person is not simply matter to be engineered. Mm-hmm. That and and this I, I agree with Dan completely. I I don't like the term human resources and human capital because it's a it's a it's a depersonalization. And so he has this beautiful line in, in another uh, essay called The Weight of Glory, where he says, you've never met a mere mortal, right? Nations, civilizations, cultures, these are mortal, but their lives to us are like the lives of a gnat. He said, it, it, but human beings are, are immortal, right? We're either everlasting splendors or immortal horrors, and that we're going somewhere. And so that we have a destiny for human flourishing here. And we have a destiny for an eternal destiny. And that all of our politics has to be seen in the light of our human flourishing here and our eternal destiny, which really takes the person person very, very seriously. So I think— It also takes freedom very seriously as well. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, that he says that all of our dealings, right— Deals has to be conducted in the context of an eternal destiny. Uh, so I think that's that's the 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 so the first thing is Dan's point, like resisting propaganda, being a part of the prep, uh, your patrimony. He says for every new book you, you read, you should read <laughs> you should read uh, two old ones. Second is this big picture of we have to be thought of in a human flourishing and eternal destiny. And then I think the third thing that Lewis contributes, not just in the abolition of man, but in some of his work, like a humanitarian theory of punishment or uh, learning in a time of war. That um, really living out our daily life in our family, doing the things that matter, having the space for families to live out their freedom and their responsibilities and not to be cogs in the machine of capitalists or social engineers of the state is, is absolutely essential. And that the state is not supposed to be like this humanitarian theory of punishment. The state is not – we're not cogs or, or little uh, dials that elite state conditioning planners use to kind of create the perfect society. And so Lewis's skepticism about utopianism, but, and his affirmation of the dignity of the human person and of regular family life and his critique of conditioning, I think creates this important space. So I think for, for, I think Lewis really is a incredible supporter of human freedom, of the dignity of families, of, Justice and rule of law, and then in, he didn't like socialism. No, either. no, in that space, or the welfare state. Nope, because in that space, because he, because that's what we need to figure out. Where because when the reason is this, we can often think, oh yeah, well I don't socialism. That means you don't care about the poor. But what Lewis is saying is no. What actually happens is the poor get socially manipulated and engineered. And in in his great book of the. Um, that hideous strength, which is kind of the novel of the abolition of man. I don't know if you guys have read mm-hmm. it, but it came out 
I think they're just a year apart. So Up he's here. thinking okay. right. through the same Yeah, place. it's a nov- there's a character in it who get, he's he's committed a crime. And he's he's guilty, right? He stole something or whatever. And then he gets he gets out of prison and they're about to go pick him up. But it ter- turns out that NICE, you know, the, the the NICE center has taken him to kind of rebuild him as a person. And this I think is really like dysto- Lewis this is his dystopian fiction where the social engineer outside of Humanity and the patrimony sees everyone else as something to be manipulated, and so I think Lewis is like the, 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 both the natural law, the Tao element, connected with all the things we've already talked about, really stresses that the government should be to serve the family and the person, and the person is not simply a cog for social engineers, and that's why I mean, if if, we, if that's why I think Lewis is just an essential. A person for the for the really the freedom of the human being and the freedom and goodness of the family. Well, Michael Miller and uh, Dan Hugo, we have gone from Afghanistan all the way back to Oxford in the 1940s and 1950s in the space of an hour. I'd like to thank both of you for joining me joining me today. I'd recommend uh, all our listeners to check out Michael Matheson-Miller and Dan Hugo on Acton's website. You'll find lots of uh, written materials as well as lectures that address many of the subjects we've considered today. Uh, I'm Sam Gregg. I've been hosting Acton Unwind today in the absence of Eric Cohen, who will be back uh, next week. Uh, all of you who are listening, I'd urge you, if you're if you're so inclined, to give us a five-star rating on the whatever podcast server you're using. That helps this this Act and Unwind podcast to get to wider and broader audiences in America and throughout the world. Thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to being back with you next week for another episode, another podcast episode of Acton Unwind. Thank you very much.